Prophecy is brought to you from Old Testament Isaiah, chapter 62, verses 6 and 7, timely and timeless. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The word of the Lord. Well, this winter, we are asking the question, what can the Hebrew prophets teach us about living justly? And, uh, as I'm sure you all know, immigration has been a lot in the news this week. Next week, I thought we'd take uh, the, the sermon and uh, explore what the prophets has to say about our relationship to the refugee and the immigrant and the sojourner. This week, we're going to sit at the feet of the prophet Isaiah and see what he has to say to us about what it means to live justly. Now, most scholars today believe that the book of Isaiah is actually a two-volume set. And you remember that the prophets didn't sit down and just write a book. They gave prophecies that were called oracles, and then those that heard them collected them, and eventually they were placed in scrolls, and then eventually they were collected together and handed down. So most scholars feel that the first volume is found in chapters 1 to 39, and it is a collection of oracles from the prophet Isaiah, who began his ministry in the last year of King Uzziah's life, and that was a time of terror in Israel when the Assyrian kingdom was advancing from the north. One of the things that was happening was that God's people had panicked and started to uh, decide that political alliances would save them. And they, they pretty much got into bed with the devil. And Isaiah kept warning them that that would not work. And uh, eventually they were judged and destroyed. The second volume is found in chapters 40 to 66. And the prophet here addresses events that take place about 200 years later. He is speaking to a devastated Israel that is much like modern Syria would be today. Uh, it has been entirely destroyed. Jerusalem uh, was like Aleppo today, destroyed. And the Jewish people have been scattered and murdered and starved to death. And so the prophecies in 40 to 66 are aimed at giving hope and encouragement to those living in a devastated Jerusalem. Now, the rabbis collected all these oracles, put them into a couple of scrolls, and they all became known as the book of Isaiah. And the author of both volumes is traditionally just called Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is still very concerned with justice. He says, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come. He laments that justice is lacking. He says, therefore, justice is far from us. We hope for justice and there is none. But Isaiah does something that you don't see in Amos. You don't see much in Hosea. One of the things that Isaiah wants to do is give a vision of what the world looks like when God's peace comes, when his reign comes, when his justice comes. 
hopeful visions of what happens when God gets his way on earth. And if we could put up a, a verse from Isaiah 65, 17 to 25, this is one of those prophecies. Uh, it's about Jerusalem, remember, and he's prophesying at a time where Jerusalem is in ruins, where uh, dead bodies lie in the streets, where the, where the walls are devastated, where orphans are wandering about. It was a brutal time. And in the midst of this, he looks into the future and he says, he says, people of God, this is what I'm doing. This is where I'm going. And I'd like us to read this together. Uh, join me now. I am creating new heavens and a new earth. Everything of the past will be forgotten. Celebrate and be glad forever. I am creating a Jerusalem full of happy people. I will celebrate with Jerusalem and all of its people. There will be no more crying or sorrow in that city. No child will die in infancy. Everyone will live to a ripe old age. Anyone a hundred years old will be considered young. And to die younger than that will be considered a curse. My people will live in the houses they build. They will enjoy grapes from their own vineyards. No one will take away their homes or vineyards. My chosen people will live to be as old as trees, and they will enjoy what they have earned. Their work won't be wasted, and their children won't die of dreadful diseases. I will bless their children and their grandchildren. I will answer their prayers before they finish praying. Wolves and lambs will graze together. Lions and oxen will feed on straw. Snakes will eat only dirt. They won't bite or harm anyone on my holy mountain. I, the Lord, have spoken. So this is a vision of a city enjoying God's justice. It's filled with joy. Uh, The people in it have good health, good housing, the opportunity to work for their bread. Children aren't doomed to die. God's presence rests over the city. Enemies are reconciled and live in peace. And so in the Old Testament and again in the New, the New Jerusalem becomes a symbol of God's reign on earth. So when you, when you see the New Jerusalem in the Bible, it represents the kingdom of God coming to earth, God's just kingdom coming to earth. Now, Isaiah invites his listeners to join in building that just kingdom. And one of the ways that we get to join in building the just kingdom on earth is through prayer. And that's what that little verse that we just read, Turner just read for us, is about. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. So walls protected ancient cities. They were the boundaries that kept the community safe. And they would have watchmen on the walls. And the watchmen would be on the walls day and night. And they had two jobs. One was to look for danger, to look for armies that were invading. They were trained specifically to do that. The Hebrew word means to spy, to look out, to peer into. 
And so these were the people that were awake when everybody else was asleep. These were the people that could see that other people couldn't see. And they were trained to detect danger coming across the horizon. They were also trained to look for good news, such as a messenger coming, bringing uh, good news of a victory or a, a coming relief. So those were the watchmen in Israel in Isaiah's day. But he uses the phrase metaphorically uh, to talk about another kind of role. Because in the Old Testament, the watchman was a prophet. God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. So a watchman, metaphorically or symbolically, a watchman is a person that God gives the people of God to warn them of danger and also sometimes to encourage them of coming hope. And this is true in the New Testament. Uh, Ephesians 4, God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Paul says the same thing in Corinthians. God has appointed in the church apostles, second prophets, then miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administrating, various kinds of tongues. So God gives these people to the body today to protect us, to warn us, to let us know when the wall is broken, when there's danger in the community, when there is disease in the community. That's what watchmen do. Now, they also pray. God says, you who put the Lord in remembrance. That's an interesting way to describe prayer, but it's a very Hebrew idea of prayer, is that one of the things that these prophets are supposed to do is to constantly remind God of his promises, to look out over the present situation, the gap between what is and what God has said will be, to remember the covenant promises, and to remind God of what he said he would do. That's Hebrew prayer. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus expands this in that great teaching in Luke 11, where he's teaching about prayer, and he says, it's like this. You have a friend. You need bread. The friend won't answer. Keep knocking on the door until he gives it to you. Keep asking. Keep knocking. Keep seeking. In the New Testament, this call to pray is expanded to all of us. Well, let's think a little bit about what this might mean. What we're saying is that God gives watchmen to his people to warn us of danger, to show us where there is sickness in the community, to point out threats, also to look for hopeful visions of the future. And those watchmen call the people of God to pray, and we pray fervently. He says, give him no rest. God wants us to ask him again and again and again and again and again. He wants to be reminded of his promises that he promised to keep. Why? I don't know. It's what it says. It's the way it works. And if you've been with God long, you know that's the way it works. It just works this way. Somehow he wants us to join him in what he's doing in the world. And somehow when we intercede with him, it results in him remembering and moving towards justice. I don't know. It seems like he could have found a more efficient way. But it's what the word says prayer is. So we give him no rest. Now, what would that have looked like in um, ancient Israel? Well, these Hebrew watchmen had a special kind of prayer 
that they used when they saw a shalom gap. When they saw a gap between Isaiah 65 and where they were living. And that prayer was called a prayer of lament. And a prayer of lament has three parts to it. The first part is grief. If you want to look one up later, uh, there's many, many more psalms of lament than there are psalms of praise. And interestingly, studies of the songs American Christians sing in their churches shows that we've flipped it. It's not so true in Africa, China, India, and South America, but in America, we don't like, particularly more white churches, don't like psalms of lament. Well, there's three parts to them. The first part of a lament psalm is grief. And that's when you tell God how troubled you are about something. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the the first part is grief. The second part is protest. The person praying complains to God about the situation. Psalm 22, why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? The third part of lament is hope. And this is where the person praying reminds God of his promises and asks God to ask. Don't be far from me, for trouble's near and there's no one to help. From the horns of the wild oxen, you've rescued me in the past. And I'll tell of your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And that's very important to keep in mind. We are not talking about nihilistic rage here. We are talking about people moving from grief to hope. And in about 90% of all the lament material in the Old Testament, and there's a ton of it, there is grief, protest, and a movement towards, I know who you are, I know what you can do, and I trust you. Now, for Psalm 43 would be a good example. It begins with a complaint. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? But in the end, it moves towards hope. Hope in God. I will praise you again. My salvation is in my God. Now, these kind of prayers are very helpful in times of both personal grief, when you're sick or going through a death, when you're disturbed emotionally, But they're also very helpful in times of communal grief when the people that you are with or the community that you're a part of or even the culture that you're a part of is suffering. There's several psalms that are just communal lament psalms, 44, 74, 79, 80, and 83. The book of Lamentations is five lament sermons. Now, Here's how the people of God have used this in the past, for example. It was 1996, and apartheid had just come down in South Africa. And that what was true politically was not happening very much on the ground because black people and white people hated each other with great intensity. And so Archbishop Desmond Tutu set into motion something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And they set up a commission, the purpose of which was to have the people that had been brutalized by apartheid share what had happened with the people that had done it to them. 
and give them an opportunity to confess and the victim an opportunity to ask forgiveness. And they actually did this. It took several years, and many would, would say it was one of the most remarkable redeeming works in the, the 20th century. But Bishop Tutu called all the members of the commission together for a special prayer service at St. George's Cathedral in Cape Town just before it started. But the prayer service was probably unlike one that you and I have ever been at because it was primarily a service of lament. They offered several prayers that included prayers of repentance for the reign of terror, including torture, maiming, and the murder of men, women, and children. There were prayers of lament over the loss of loved ones, confessions over terrible feelings of bitterness, and then finally, prayers for healing and new life and thanking God for the promise of a new beginning. It may be time, brothers and sisters, for more prayers like that. This is not, language, this is not our first language for many of us, but it is among many of the peoples of the world. Now, whenever God is at work correcting injustice, you will find men and women of prayer giving him no rest with their intercessions. Uh, if, if you ever want a fascinating book about the spiritual background of the civil rights movement, read uh, The Beloved Community by Charles Marsh. And what Professor Marsh did was go back and, and look at the role that faith played in the civil rights movement. And one of the things that he discovered that's very rarely commented on was the role of Koinonia Farm to the civil rights workers. Koinonia Farm was a retreat started by Clarence Jordan in the 40s in uh, rural Georgia. And the civil rights workers would retreat to Koinonia Farm uh, for prayer. And many of them would later look back at the kind of intercession that happened in those retreats as one of the reasons why they were able to press on. Uh, Coretta Scott King once wrote, throughout the epic freedom struggle of African Americans, our great sustainer of hope has been the power of prayer. There's an inter interesting interview uh, with uh, Congressman John Lewis uh, with Krista Tippett on, online, and she asked him about the day he walked across Edmund Pettus Bridge uh, knowing that he very well could die, and he was the first to run into uh, the blows and almost did die. And she asked him, uh, how on earth did you have the courage to do that? And he said, well, we spent months in spiritual preparation. Uh, they were trained in praying and in nonviolent resistance and over months developed the kind of capacity to have that kind of tremendous courage. When Dietrich Bonhoeffer realized the Nazi threat, he saw most of the church just saying, Sieg Heil to Hitler, while uh, he went off and formed a monastic-like uh, community up in northern Germany. And uh, it was on an estate, I think it was called Finkenwald. And one of the things that he did is he formed the seminary around uh, the monastic rhythms of prayer. And they would pray morning, noon, and evening. And he knew that the only way that the confessing church would have any kind of hope in resisting Nazism was through fervent prayer. The same thing is true in the abolitionist movement. Most of the abolitionists were Christian. And if you go back and you dig into the 
to the way William Wilberforce and others, others overturned slavery in the 19th century and the 18th century was it was rooted in fervent intercessory prayer. There were hours and hours of prayer and intercession uh, for justice. So one of the ways that we do justice is to pray for justice. We find a shalom gap, a gap between God's vision and our reality, and we give him no rest until he moves. We just wear him out over and over and over. And this is Jesus' words, not mine. This image of God going, enough already. (laughs) I'll give it to you. I got to go back to bed. Now, of course, that's not about a sleepy God. That's a call for persistent prayer. Give him no rest. Ask him again and again and again and again and again. Commercial, why does your prayer life stink? It's too doggone small. It's not big enough. Don't you get bored with praying about your weight? I I don't think people on the front lines in World War II got bored. They had a lot of problems. I don't think boredom was one of them. If you're bored as a Christian, your God's not big enough. Your prayers aren't big enough. These prayers are all over the Bible. Psalm 10, 17. Oh, Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. Incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. And then Proverbs 31, 8. Speak up for those who are destitute. Open your mouth and defend the rights of the poor. One writer, Etienne Pieck, wrote, Praying is the act of touching God's heart. It opens up the opportunity to bring our own needs before God, but also to be impacted by the things that break God's heart. Intercessory prayer is our responsibility to stand in the gap for the poor, the broken, the hopeless, and to pray for God's mercy to transform, to make right what is wrong. Walter Wink, the theologian, put it like this, history belongs to the intercessors. So let me give you a challenge, and and, and I'm not trying to be snarky, because when things are going on in the world that that break your heart, things like what are happening with refugees and immigrants and vulnerable children and all the things that we talk about, you need to talk about it, and it's appropriate to talk about it. And so one of the ways in our culture we talk about it is through Facebook and, and posting and things like that. And I think what we're seeing there is people are groping for a way to lament, they're trying to find a way to lament. But Facebook isn't the greatest way to do that. Uh, there, there, there is some good things to learn, and thank God that, that we do have media. and We can find out what is going on. I'm not down on Facebook. I don't remember how to get on mine, but I'm not down on it. Um, but here's a challenge um, to you. For every hour you spend reading about refugees or the unborn or whatever it is, every hour you spend reading about it or posting about it or texting about it or tweeting about it or Instagramming about it or carrier pigeoning about it, whatever it is you do, spend an hour praying. I'm not saying, oh, don't, don't read. Don't get on, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying let's not get out of balance, right? Because what happens if all I'm doing is posting and blogging and shooting things back and forth my, my vision goes real flat, right? And I, I forget him. 
And I would ultimately argue then that the quality of my engagement in the debate is, is, is weakened considerably, that I don't actually add that much anymore because it's coming out of my own angst and fear and not from the Holy Spirit. So I'm not saying don't post. I'm saying balance your posting with your praying. Let's post and pray, post and pray, post and pray. That would have been a better title for the sermon, Posting and Pray. Now, that sounds a little, uh, little monk-like. You know, what it might look like is this. Maybe you don't have an hour to just sit down. It's surprising how often you have an hour to go on Facebook. But maybe you don't have an hour to just sit down. Maybe you read an article, and then you hit your knees. Instead of hitting the link to the next article, just stop for a minute, put your phone down, hit your knees, pray about what you just read. That's too passive, Doug. I don't think so. As as Etienne Pieck writes, he says, if we pray for social justice, we will find ways of working for social justice. That is the best amen to our prayer. The best kind of work in the world flows out of that dynamic interchange with God, right? The only thing that really is sustaining and helpful comes out of your walk with God. Not fear, not anger. And I know we're angry. I had a friend I'm pretty close to, goes to our church, who actually is very different than where I am politically. And he said, somehow my friends think they have a God-given right now to hate me. No, we don't. No, we don't. So, we're going to burn a candle on the altar during this series. We've added an extra, extra candle and here's how I'd encourage you to use it. Sometime during the series, get a piece of paper and you write the area of injustice that most breaks your heart and you put it in our wailing wall over there. You might write the name of a person. You might write an issue, whatever you want to write. And just stick it in the cracks over there. And every time you come up to the table and you see that extra candle burning... Let it be a reminder that you are to pray for what you put in the wall. One of you told me tonight there's a particular refugee that your heart's just breaking for. Write them down. Put their name in the wall. Every time you come up, you see that candle. Remember to pray. And tonight as we take Eucharist, you can stay as long as you want right over there, just like we would in Jerusalem, and just intercede or whatever's on your heart tonight. Gary Peacock is the director of the Canvas House of Prayer. He is a watchman who's devoted his life to giving God no rest in prayer. And so I ask him to just end us tonight by sharing what what this looks like in his life. So Gary, please come. Yes, I I am a watchman. And uh, for me, being a watchman to our city or our campus, our community, 
It's real consistent with Christ's words in John 15 when he said, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I have appointed you to produce lasting fruit. Or as the King James Version says, fruit that remains. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 what that fruit that remains really is. He says these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And for me and my wife, Rhonda, um, that lasting fruit really begins for us with intercession and prayer. It, it, it does a lot of things for us and for our campus and our city. And let me just tell you why. Because first of all, prayer uh, is more than asking God for something or to do something on our behalf. Um, it engages us in conversation with God. And what happens in that, and as, as Pastor Doug said, it's hard to explain, but when we pray, something gets catalyzed in our faith, as I like to say it. And what that does in turn is it compels us to act on what he's speaking to us now. Um, and it's in agreement always with what he has already spoken to us through his word, as you heard tonight. There's many scriptures about social justice. He wants us involved in his plans for good and not evil, as he says in Jeremiah 29, when he told the people, my plans for you are good and not evil to give you a future and a hope. So this God-breathed action by faith uh, is what I call the currency of hope. When you pray and God gives you a plan, uh, immediately what kicks in after that is hope. Uh, because it, what happens is prayer makes the impossible tangible and tangibly possible. Um, real hope is not just an expectation. It's interesting how some dictionaries define hope as an expectation, but really it's more than that. It's believing that we are well, what we are expecting is obtainable. And this prayer has an, a unique ability to do that in our life. It causes us to believe that what what we're expecting, it actually can happen, and that is the currency of hope. And social justice in itself will never be achieved without hope being introduced into it. And finally, I think prayer what it does it repostures us, um, because it clothes us literally in the love of Christ. We we have a saying we say at campus, you can't pray for someone and not eventually come to love them. And so for us, this this love that we receive from him and try to live because of him, what it does is this amazing thing that I just realized recently. When we love the way Jesus has called us to love, it incarnates Christ in the world. And it's a prophetic sign of his coming kingdom, the one the prophets talk about, the one we just read about in Isaiah that says there will be no injustice, no pain, no tears, no sorrow, no oppression, no fear, no hate. So this is why we watch and pray. This is why we do it continually and regularly for our campus and for our city for our, even for the nations and for the world because we've been invited by God to do it 
and do this, and it is amazing, transformative, and a blessing to our community when we see His justice, His love, His mercy shed abroad across our community. Thanks. Last thing I want you to think about, and we'll come to the table. If there is an area in your heart that's just breaking your heart tonight, it's just so heavy on your heart, gather some people together to pray about it. Gather them together, two, three, four, you don't need a hundred. Bring them over to your house and lament, grief, protest, hope. See what God does.